When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 324. Today's episode is all about thinking clearly, how to get better at the small decisions that shape our lives. If you've ever worked with somebody exceptional, or you've ever had a friend who's exceptional at life, and you would consider them exceptional at life, one thing you'll notice is that they have elevated standards. You work with somebody who's amazing, they have better standards than everybody else. They hold themselves to higher standards, and they hold everybody else to higher standards. That's what makes the team better. That's what makes them better. That's one thing that really impacts them. Same at life. If you have a person who you're like, oh, they're really good at life. I, I'm sort of envious or a little bit jealous. You'll notice that they're more probably more choosy about who they spend their time with. They're more choosy about maybe what they put in their body. They're more choosy about these different things. And those standards become something you can adopt. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means Mind Love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. Have you ever stopped to think about how little choices, seemingly insignificant decisions have shaped your life? Like maybe that coffee shop that you decided to pop into on a random Tuesday and met your best friend, the one who's been your rock through your highs and lows? Or that book you picked up from the library that completely changed your perspective on life. Or the day you took a different walking route only to stumble upon this cute little garden that's now your sanctuary when you need to relax. These moments and decisions are like these individual threads that weave together to create the story of our lives. Each choice adds to the pattern, shaping who we are and where we go. It reminds me of that movie Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow, where she experiences two different life trajectories based on the simple act of either catching or missing a train. Well, just like the movie, every little decision we make can send us down a different path. It's pretty cool when you think about it, how every tiny moment has its own kind of magic. It gets you thinking about the trains you've missed in your life, all the what-ifs, like the times you made a snap decision that led to something big. It's like the universe has a plan for us, nudging us along even when we think we've messed up or missed a chance. I've taught myself not to get hung up on the what-ifs. We've only got so much energy, right? And what I'm learning is that the less often I split that energy towards meaningless things, the more I have for what's really important. There's just no sense in dwelling on things that I can't change. Instead, I think it's way more valuable to focus on getting better at making those small choices as they come. That's where the real power lies. We can't go back and edit the past. 
but we can be more mindful moving forward. I'm all for the idea that everything happens for a reason, but not when it becomes an excuse for complacency. If the mantra is to live in the moment, then my goal is to master being an active participant in those moments. To engage with and create the present fully, not just watch life as it passes by, waiting for it to happen to me. So that's what we're talking about today. Getting better at thinking clearly and making those small decisions. Our guest is Shane Parrish. He's an entrepreneur, investor, and the wisdom seeker behind the popular website Farnham Street, where he writes about hidden insights that help you achieve lasting success. His online course, Decision by Design, has helped thousands of people worldwide learn the repeatable behaviors that improve decision-making in the real world. So three key things we will learn are how small arguments can have a monumental impact on your emotions and rationality, the enemies of thinking clearly and how to conquer them, and key strategies for overcoming self-doubt, boosting confidence, and taking bold leaps towards your dreams. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now let's welcome Shane Parrish to the show. Hey, Melissa, thanks for having me. So what inspired your research into thinking clearly? And what makes you qualified to bring this to us? Well, qualified is a big statement, but uh, I started working for a three-letter intelligence agency about two weeks before September 11th. And what got me started was I was thrust into these positions of responsibility and authority um, where I was making decisions that impacted my team and my country and other countries and troops in theater. And I realized walking home one night that nobody had really taught me how to make decisions and I needed to get better at that. And so I set out on this journey about 20 years ago almost now and started learning about how do we make decisions? Do certain people do better things than others that put themselves in a place where they're getting consistently better results? Or is it just luck? Or what what do we control that we can have influence over our outcomes on? One of the things that I liked about the beginning of your book was that you talked about that your life tagline is mastering the best of what other people have already figured out. And I was like, oh, I love that tagline. I feel like that's kind of where I've been living my life as well. But how long have you been living by that? Ever since I first came across, I don't even know where I came across it or if I came up with it or where it came from now. But when I think about everything that I've ever done, it's always taking somebody else's idea 
uh, making it my own, chewing on it and sort of reflecting on it and compressing it and then using it. And I realized that I was searching for all of these original ideas and it was just sort of, it wasn't working for me, but I could pick and choose from other people. And so like, if you look at the book, it's all other people's ideas and I, I've sort of accumulated them or maybe put them together in a, a different way uh, than other people. But it's really the best of what other people have figured out and put into practice. And then I reflect on that and I think about it. And, you know, so often we search for these brilliant ideas that they have to be our brilliant ideas and our ego is sort of driving us in a way. But, the, you know, there's a lot of really good ideas just hanging out there in plain sight. And a lot of ideas that have been around for a long time that sort of get overlooked um, because they're old, but they're consistent and they work. And, you know, I kind of like boring sometimes. <laughs> what about you? I actually read the book Steal Like an Artist by Austin Kleon. And mm -hmm. he talks about, he sort of changed the way I viewed myself in a way, because there were different times in my life where I'm just like, I just can't think like that. And what I learned was when I just copied other people and not in like a plagiaristic way, but really tried to copy their style and like master it, whether it's artistic lettering to interviewing to really writing styles, anything. Once I do that for a while, then it it's like it becomes ingrained in me and I naturally start to create my own style in it. And then I'm able to create new works. And I think of knowledge in that same way. One of the things that I've gotten a lot of feedback on throughout my whole life is my ability to connect ideas from even different fields. So something I learned nine years ago in some random community college class will connect with a book I'm reading on psychology right now. And I'm like, oh, if you apply this to that field and and I can kind of see the links between it, but I'm not, I'm not trying to go out there and and be the scientist on my own and, and like to discover new life forms or anything like that. Yeah, you have to imitate before you can innovate. And if you think of how we learn almost any skill, we imitate somebody who already has that skill, whether it's sort of Lenny Kravitz learning to play the guitar, or you're learning to swing a baseball bat. And then once you get to a reasonable degree of competence with that particular, then you add your own flair to it and your own knowledge and you sort of go farther. You talk about mastering clear thinking in ordinary moments over big moments. What's the power in that? Because you'd think that it would be the big moments that would make the biggest difference. Yeah, you would think that, wouldn't you? I mean, we're all taught to focus on these big decisions, where you live and who you marry and what career you go into. And generally speaking, we're pretty rational about those. We, we think about them, we know we're making a decision and we're conscious about it. Not always, but for the most part, we're pretty good about that. Even if we're wrong, we get it generally directionally correct. But all of that gets multiplied by zero if you don't invest in your relationship with your partner. You could have the best career in the world and the best job and the best place to work. But if you don't show up and work your butt off, then it just goes away. And I think that we just take ordinary moments for granted. And the ordinary moments tend to accumulate into our position. And our position determines whether we're playing on easy mode or hard mode. And so I think I just took this, this idea of these everyday decisions, these everyday moments that we all have where we're not necessarily conscious we're making a decision. 
And I started looking at them and I'm like, you know, these really impact us in ways that we don't think about. If you go home and, you know, it's a Friday night and you start arguing with your your partner or your spouse about how to load the dishwasher or some common sort of domestic dispute. And if I were to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, Melissa, like you're about to put water gas on this situation. What do you want to do? You'd be like, oh, water, like this doesn't mean anything. But in that moment, we all, we all lose sort of control. We're not thinking, we're not being rational. And what are we doing in that moment? We're escalating. And it's about how do we get out of that stuff? That makes a lot of sense because it's in the little moments that you find out how people handle situations when their guard is down. <laughs> it's like mm. there are certain things when I that I'm like, okay, this is a heated moment. I need to watch what I say. It's like I'm I'm I've done the work at least where I get into I'm more likely to have a little bit of a safeguard where I I kind of stop pause before reacting. I've been working on that for over a decade. <laughs> but it's like those little things where it's like, okay, I'm sitting on the couch and nobody's around and I have exactly 40 minutes to myself while my baby's sleeping. Do I get up and do the things I need to do or do I stay in an Instagram rabbit hole right now? <laughs> you know what I mean? Totally. It's like no one's watching. I remember hearing, who was it? It might have been Joe Rogan talking about how he sometimes pretends to that there's a camera crew following him around. <laughs> and yeah. Every now and then I'll, I'll get into that mindset where I'm like, I'm trying to be my best self. I'm only accountable to myself right now. So it shouldn't matter if a camera crew is following me around. But what do I want to actually be? What do I, how do I want to show up in this world that those little decisions are going to create the basis of the habits that create who I am? Totally. And we often deceive ourselves, right? If you ask somebody what their priorities are, and then you look at their calendar and how they allocate their time, there should be alignment between those things. But often we don't have alignment between that. And that's okay, as long as we're conscious about it. But we, we often are not conscious of that. And these aren't where we're consciously making decisions, because each one in aggregate is this ordinary sort of decision that doesn't have a big implication. It's only when you accumulate those moments together, do you end up with this dramatically different result than we want? It's funny because there's a several areas of my life that I just am pretty aware that I'm wildly different from other people. <laughs> oh, I want to hear more about that. <laughs> well, one of them is probably the mindset stuff. I, I really prioritize that. This is what I do for a living. I am blessed to talk to people like you and people that are really changing the game and how we view our lives. And and I'm not the kind of person that wants to learn information and just like put it to the wayside. If I learn something, it's in my head and I it's almost like I have to make a change with that. And so one of the ways that this has, has changed the way I live my life is with health stuff. A lot of my family is just the kind that there's like, oh, there's a pill for that. Let me take it. <laughs> and yeah. when I look at the state of my family, they're not the most healthy people. And I was in that position at one point, especially in my 20s. I I had ADD. I was prescribed Adderall. But Adderall was tied to so much more than just my ADD. I also had an eating disorder, so it suppressed my appetite. I I had more energy. It was also like a party drug. People wanted it. It was wrapped up into a lot of things. And it took a lot for me to 
wean myself off of that. And when I did, it's like I discovered parts of my personality that I had lost, like rediscovered them. I was more playful. I wasn't as on edge as much. I wasn't always rushing people through their conversations. I was just able to relax into being. That in combination with my dad dying of cancer just sent me down this holistic health journey. And so I am not against Western medicine, but I think it is really overprescribed. I am not against indulgence foods, but I look at the ingredients and I would rather go home and make my own delicious cookie with butter and chocolate chips than like the one that has all these ingredients I can't pronounce. And so over the last 10 to 15 years, I've made so many changes that when somebody like my mom or a cousin comes to visit or I go there and they're trying to give me stuff and I, it's just like there's this huge disconnect between me and other people. And so sometimes I'm like, well, am I on the deep end of this? Like, have I taken this too far? Or have I just sort of built my values into my lifestyle and seeing the contrast of other people is really the only time it seems to come up. And that's a little bit of a tangent, but it just is just the way I work and like, oh, I've learned this, that this ingredient might be bad. It's just being cut out of my diet forever. Yeah, it sounds like you're sort of going back to basics and simplifying in terms of what you put into your body and being conscious about that. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says. (laughs) And it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small. And when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams... 
Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. But it's interesting because when you make decisions that veer off from the norm and you stand by them firmly, you'd think that people might see it as, you know, she's committed to health. But instead, there's often pushback or comments. For example, mom's groups over something like choosing to give my kids organic snacks. (laughs) It sounds silly, but it's as if by not sharing the same values, there's just this like subtle pressure to justify your choices, which can then leave you having doubts, wondering if you're overdoing it. But then you just step back and realize, wait, this is about what matters to you, not them. That's where you find your footing in the clarity that your decisions are crafting your ideal life, living into your values, staying true to what's important to you, regardless of the crowd's opinions. That's interesting, right? Because if if you think about it a different way, if they agree with you, and then they don't choose to change their own behavior, then what does that say about them? And so it's almost like they have to be in a situation where they would be doing that. And I think, you know, what makes the world beautiful is that we all have these different ideas about how to live and how to eat and how to be healthy. And we all get to express those ideas in everyday life. And it's only when we are confronted with people living in a different way, do we have to look into ourselves and be like, oh, am I choosing and am I doing the right things for me? Or do I want to change something? And it's really hard to admit that you've been doing something wrong for a long time. If, if you find a better way to do something, I mean, that's what you should do, right? You should admit that you made a mistake and course correct, or now you have new information and you're going to do better. But that's a really hard realization to make because it plays with our ego a bit, right? What have we been doing all these years? If if what you're doing is right, that means what I'm doing is wrong. Or if what you're doing is better, that means what I'm doing is less better. Well, now all of a sudden I have to have this internal conversation with myself. That's so true. And it's it's interesting to me because I also get a lot of comments with like, oh, how come... <laughs> why are your kids never sick? Or how did you do this? Or blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I, I really prioritize health. Like, I don't know what to say. But then when it comes down to the to the actual components of what that means, there's all the pushback. And it, it comes cool. up too with parenting. Um, I've noticed a lot of my friends with kids, now we have this generation has so much access to information. And so we all, I mean, any any topic of parenting, sleep, food, whatever, baby led weaning versus purees, like everything is a heated topic and uh, within moms of this generation. But then there's a clash between the previous generation who got 
like my mom got all her information from her mom and her sister. And I'm like, yeah, but what's that based on? And so there's always like the, well, in my day, we did it this way. And it's like my parenting decisions <laughs> are a, aren't just, oh, this is the way I want to raise my kids. It's, it's different from how you did it. So it's almost like a threat to, or a put down to their parenting in some way. It's just funny. <laughs> well, it, it's got to be the same thing, right? If you're doing it differently, then does that mean that my way was wrong? And it's sort of that conversation that people have with themselves. And, uh, you know, your kids will be doing the same thing when, when you're, you know, when they have kids and you have grandkids, they'll be raising them slightly different than you raise them. And they'll have, they'll be expressing their opinions through these actions. And you'll be faced with this question as well. I think we all, it's natural. And these words are really ambiguous, right? When you, when you say you're being healthy, health means different things to different people, the same as wealth and money mean different things to different people. And so you really have to nail down the vocabulary about what does healthy mean? Do we all agree that we need to sleep? Okay, well, and then build it back up, right? Do What does a healthy eating look like? What does a healthy lifestyle look like? And how do you make trade-offs between different things when you have competing interests? when you have to work and you have to do things and, and maybe you have to make sacrifices in other areas, some people might choose to sacrifice and, and, you know, their health and go to, I don't know, McDonald's for lunch. And other people might uh, choose to go to the gym for lunch and, you know, not have as busy, busy of a job or they take more freedom and less money. And these are all the trade-offs that allow us to express our individuality and our current thoughts. And you can sort of see based on people's choices, whether they're conscious about them or not, uh, what they value. That's so true. Because I also know people who have a lot of the same habits that I would consider sort of me prioritizing health, but it's coming from a place of stress, like the water is poisoned type thing versus I'm going to filter my water because I want to know what I'm putting, <laughs> you know, it's like, and and that happens a lot in the holistic communities. And it's like, well, you're stressing yourself out, which is just kind of undermining a lot of the, a lot of the decisions that you're making. Yeah. I, I know that one of the things you talk about is that in order to get the results that we desire, we have to do two things. We have to create the space to reason in our thoughts, feelings, and actions. And we also have to deliberately use that space to think clearly. So what do you mean by creating the space to, to think clearly? And in some of the things that we've been talking about, how would that be applied? Yeah. So we're all animals. Uh, humans are animals. And what we share these traits with other animals and, and sort of these biological tendencies, we're territorial, we're self-preserving, we're hierarchical, we're ritual, all animals are those things. The difference between humans and other animals is that we have the ability to reason before we respond. Whereas 99.9% .9 of other animals don't have that ability and they just react. And we're no better than other animals if we don't use that space to reason and to think. And so when I think of what it means to think clearly, there's sort of three components to it. It's the position that you're in, managing your defaults and thinking independently. And those three things all sort of work together. And the position that you're in is sort of the space, right? So if I tell you, uh, you know, you have to recognize when you're angry and then control yourself, 
well, that might work 20% of the time, but you're, you're playing on hard mode if, if that's what you're waiting for. How do we make that on easy mode? Well, you can position yourself so that you get angry a lot less, right? You work in a job that you like, or maybe you eat better food or you sleep better. There, there's all these things that go into dampening your anger a little bit. And when you dampen it, it's easier to sort of manage these defaults or, or control these urges that get other people into trouble. And I think that we just don't think about that. We think about how do I respond in this particular moment? And then when I think about what we can do differently, it's like, how do we choose to play on easy mode? And uh, I don't know about you, but there's like no points for difficulty in life. So why not make it easier than, uh, <laughs> why not make it easy instead of hard? A great example of that is, you know, I have a teenage, I have two teenagers at home and one of my kids came home a few weeks ago and, you know, he handed me his test and he got a really bad grade on his test. And he just looked at me, shrugged his shoulders in the way that teenagers do. And he said, I did my best and like brushed by me. And I was like, oh gosh, you know, this is not the moment to talk about this with him. But I waited until his emotions dampened down in a little bit. And I said, hey, let's talk about this. I want to know what does it mean to do your best? When you said that, I want to know, what were you thinking? Explain that to me. And he said, well, you know, my test started at 10 and I looked at all the questions and I looked at all the points and I allocated my time properly. And I was like, oh, that's really good, right? Like you you did the best you could from 10 to 11, that one hour of your test. But let's rewind and look at the 72 hours leading up to that test. Did you study effectively? No. Did you sleep well? No. Did you pick a fight with your brother? Yes. Did you eat well? No. Well, you didn't really do your best then. You chose to play on hard mode. And I think a lot of us do, right? When we react in these situations, we're, we're playing on hard mode. We need to be able to reason. And we're generally pretty good at reasoning. We get the big things right once again, but we know these big moments matter and we're sort of in control of them. I think it's just about how do we create the space so that we can actually reason? We can choose to play on easy mode and we can control our sort of emotion, our ego a lot easier than when it's on hard mode. That actually brings me to something that is the reason when I say I prioritize, prioritize health, in my mind, I use it as kind of a catch-all word for those basics, the, the foundations. But I also have um, a belief that it that the closer I am with nature, it's kind of putting my body on easy mode. And so I like to eat foods with that I'm making from home more than getting processed foods. And I, and I like to be outside in the sun instead of going into a tanning bed <laughs> or like just taking vitamin D. It's like, why not just let my body produce it? But one of the biggest things is sleep because I know that I am not myself when I, when I don't have sleep. And so it's just, it's funny because there's something about going from your twenties to your thirties <laughs> Where it's just like, how was I never prioritizing this? I was such a party girl back then. And it's like, I'd just stay up late drinking, whatever. And I'd wake up feeling like crap and wonder why my moods were all over the place. And now I have such a solid baseline that it's like, that's just me taking care of, of myself in a way. But I also know that because of my experiences, the people that I talk to, I, I probably have a lot of biases in within what my definition of of health is and i know that because 
I dealt with an eating disorder for so long. And so to me, there's like this fine line with certain things where it's not just that I'm avoiding it because I believe in the holistic community's words, it's toxic. I know people are <laughs> triggered by that word, but I think about it. But it's it's toxic for me as a person because I know it's like a trigger food or something like that. And I know once I eat it, these old spirals come back that I haven't dealt with in so long because I'm not feeling good about that food. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I just, it all happens so quickly for me that I'm just making a decision and I feel like I'm right. And and one of the things that you teach is that what we consider to be thinking is in fact reacting without reasoning. And so I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that. Well, a couple of things come to mind as, as you were talking, right? When you think about the worst moments in your life or the, the moments where you make the worst decisions, you're generally being impulsive. You're not thinking, you're not really, you're just responding, you're reacting in the moment. And if you were to go back and press pause on that and look at sort of the 72 hours going into that, I bet you, you probably didn't eat really well. You didn't sleep really well. You probably weren't working out. You probably weren't doing these boring things that we know make a really big difference in terms of our ability to control those impulses. So you were playing on hard mode. And when you're playing on hard mode, you're relying on willpower and you're relying on the ability to catch yourself feeling angry in the moment. And that works about 20% of the time. If you look at Alcoholics Anonymous, what did they tell you to watch out for? It's halt, hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. If you are any of those things, call your buddy. Why? Because you don't make good decisions in those moments. And we're the same way. And I think that we just don't think about how we can put life on easy mode. Doesn't mean we're still not going to get angry. We're still not going to get upset. But on a scale of one to 100, we're not going to be 99. We're going to be like 65. And it's a lot easier to avoid problems when we're at 65 than 100. The other thing that sort of comes to mind in these situations where we're relying on willpower to make the right choice. Maybe it's a food that triggers you. Maybe you don't want to eat dessert and everybody's eating dessert. How do we avoid just having to make a choice in these moments? And one thing that I talk about in the book is creating automatic rules for success. And these automatic rules, we're, we're taught our whole lives to follow rules. Here's the speed limit. You follow it. You don't have to be told to follow the speed limit every day. Once somebody tells you it's a rule, you just intuitively follow it, but we've never been taught how to use these rules to our own advantage. And I came up with this idea when I was talking with Daniel Kahneman in his penthouse in New York. And I remember he was on the phone and he said something that really struck, struck me. He said, I don't say, my rule is I don't say yes on the phone. And then he sort of like hung up and he's like, I'll get back to you. And we started talking after and I was like, wait, tell me about this, your rule. And he's like, yeah, I felt a lot of social pressure to do things that I didn't want to do. I don't like disappointing people. I don't want to say no. And so I ended up doing all, all these things that I didn't want to do. And who can't resonate with that feeling? I do. And he said, so I created this rule where I just don't say yes on the phone. And when I tell people it's a rule, they don't argue with me because we've been taught our whole lives not to argue with rules. And I was like, that's brilliant, right? He took this common, ordinary situation, he created a rule around it. And by creating that rule, he doesn't even think about it. He's not making a conscious decision in that moment. He's just following the rule he's already created. And I was like, what other rules do you have? And he's like, oh, that's the only one. And I was like, this is so powerful. Like you can use this for everything. 
so I had a friend that I tested this out on who, who was sort of trying to eat healthier. And by trying, I meant they were using willpower to eat healthier. And so they were in sales. They were going out to restaurants all the time. And they always ended up eating the, you know, bad food, doing bad things uh, in social circumstances. And who also doesn't resonate with that, right? You're celebrating with your friends. You might not want to drink, but you do. And so I was like, here, why don't we just create two rules around this? And I want to see if these rules make a difference for you. The rule is you always eat the healthiest thing on the menu. And the second rule is you have no dessert. And sure enough, they implemented this. And three months later, I get this phone call and they're like, this has changed everything. Uh, my health is dramatically improved. I'm more energetic. I'm walking more. I'm exercising more. I'm doing all these things. And, you know, at first I was like, oh, this sucks. And he's like, after the second or third time, he was like, it was just automatic. I didn't even have to think about it. I wasn't using willpower to pick the healthiest thing on the menu. I just intuitively knew that that was my rule. And I was like, oh, this is really powerful. I've tried this out on a few people now. And so what other rules can we come up with that are just really effective at getting what we want? So you have to determine what you want to get, and then you can create your own rules to make sure that that happens. One of mine is I work out every day. And I think it's like so funny to think about this, but like when I was working out two or three days a week, what was happening to me is I was negotiating with myself. So I would get in these situations where I'm like, I'm really busy today. I don't feel like working out. I'll just be behind on all these other things. And I would say that I will do extra tomorrow. I would lie to myself. And that's the negotiation that we do. I'll do extra tomorrow. Of course, when tomorrow came around, I'm just as tired. I'm just as, uh, you know, got just as much on my plate to do. And I don't feel like it. And so I said, you know, I'm going to create a rule. My rule is that I'm going to sweat every day. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to work out for an hour every day. It means that I can change the duration. I can change the scope of my workouts, but I'm going to work out every single day. And that doesn't mean I'm even going to go to the gym every day, but some days I'm just going to go and do squats and then leave. And that's all I can do for that day. And that's fine. I'm not going to beat myself up about it. So when I wake up in the morning, the conversation changed from, should I work out today? Because I'm only working out three days a week. So I get to pick those three days to how do I fit a workout in today? And it's a really powerful difference that makes a huge impact on your health and your willpower and the choices that you make. That is basically how I live my life with food. I don't, I don't buy non-organic processed food. I, and so the things in my house, I'm comfortable eating at any time. The, I don't have, I mean, I do have like a bag of chocolate chips. Those are my things. But it just makes it easier because when I'm out, I don't stress myself out when, you know, people are ordering whatever. I'm not looking, asking them where they source their food. I will prioritize a farm to table restaurant. Don't get me wrong. But it's just mostly the rules at home because I eat out like once a month, maybe. And so it makes it really easy. And that was literally what I had to do to heal from an eating disorder. And now it's just sort of a way of life that keeps me feeling my best. But I also realized that that was, for me, how I had to handle alcohol. I was, like I mentioned, a big party girl. And so I spent so many years changing my relationship with alcohol to where I was moderating, wouldn't drink every night, would only drink on weekends. And it was like, I was always playing these games of like, well, which, 
which days am I going to drink? Well, I, then I can only have two glasses. Well, maybe if I just have a little bit more of a third, like everything was this negotiation with myself. Mm -hmm. And that was when I was just like, you know what? I've, I wonder how much better my life would be without this. And of course, at the time, all I could think about in my head was, yeah, but what about those times snowboarding and I can't just have a glass of wine on the top of a mountaintop or at weddings or this. And I'm like, let's just see how it goes. Do 30 days. And then 30 days turned to 90 days, 90 days turned to a year that turned to two years. And now it's not even a question. My life is so much drastically better, <laughs> so drastically better than it was before. Just with freedom. Like I feel free. And not only that, I actually have more fun at social functions now because I'm not sitting there thinking, well, do I go back and get a drink? Am I drinking faster than other people? And I know that there's a whole segment of people that don't have these conversations about alcohol, but I am one of those people. And so I went to my 20 year high school reunion a couple months ago and I had so much fun and I had people coming up to me saying, how are you the most fun one here and you're not even drinking? And I'm like, maybe because I'm not in line for alcohol. I'm not having to stand off the, off the sidelines, not dancing to hold my drink. I'm not getting too sloppy and losing energy. I was just on the dance floor the whole time. And so you're so right about just sometimes it's removing the options, changing, changing the question that you're asking yourself around the thing, just changes your entire relationship with whatever it is you're working with. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Totally. So think about what you want. Think about what rules would help you get that. And, you know, you, you can come up with the, your own rules. Nobody has to tell you what to do. You, you can, like you said, you know, drinking on weekends only 
has been hard for a lot of people who choose to do that. And maybe they can do that and they're fine. But for a lot of other people, it's tempting to to move to Thursday. And then if you do Thursday, you might as well do Wednesday. And if you do Wednesday, well, what's a drink on Tuesday? And then before you know it, some days becomes every day. And uh, that's fine if you want to drink every day and you know, you're know you not hurting anybody and um, that's your choice. However, if that's not what you want to do and you're relying on willpower to make those choices and you're finding it hard to use your willpower, of course you're finding it hard, right? You come home after a long day of work. When are you relying on willpower? At the very moment that you need willpower the most, it's probably at its weakest. And so you can create these rules for yourself. My rule is I don't drink or my rule is I only drink Fridays. And once you start telling yourself that that's your rule, it'll take a couple days, but then all of a sudden it just becomes this thing you follow and you're consistent about it. And when you're consistent about it, it becomes a ritual. And when it's ritualized, it just becomes the norm and you don't even think about it anymore, like you said. And then it's a good idea to just periodically check in with yourself, right? Where am I doing things that I don't want to be doing them? Can I create a rule around that? And where are things going really well in my life? And make sure that, you know, you don't get off track with those things. When we're starting to build these ritual rituals to responses of our biological triggers, what are some of the things we have to be aware of? What are the enemies of our clear thinking? Yeah, I think that the most common enemies are sort of emotion, ego, social situations, social pressure, doing what everybody else is doing, and inertia. Inertia is one where it's like you end up working in a job that you don't like just because it's really hard to change and you've been there and you're comfortable or you end up staying in a relationship that you've been in for a long time and it's sort of like too good to leave, but too bad to stay. And you don't end up doing something about the situation that you're not comfortable with or you're not happy with. Social, we've sort of talked about already, which is, you know, you end up doing what everybody else is doing uh, just because that's how we evolved, right? Again, we evolved to be self-preserving. And if you think of what self-preserving means in the context of a group, it means that you have to go along, you have to fit in the tribe, you have to get along with other people, you have to do what other people are doing. But what you really want to do is look for these moments where you can create positive deviation, where you can do something against the crowd and it gains an advantage. Ego is another one that a lot of people struggle with. They just think that their way is the right way and that no other way can exist. And once you start thinking that way, you get trapped into not listening to what other people can say. You get trapped into your your perspective is the only perspective on something. And you stop thinking in these moments, right? That's what's common between emotion, ego, social inertia. These are just moments that heighten our ability not to think and to react. When it comes to ego, I have three words written on my desk that help me encapsulate what I really want in any given situation. And those three words are outcome over ego. It's not about me. It's about getting the best outcome. And if I don't have the best way to get the best outcome, then I want to adapt somebody else's way. And I think that if we reframe outcomes around that, and we put our ego in line with getting the best outcome, then we can really harness that to our advantage. When I was reading the section around ego, you highlighted the ideas that so often we're more interested in appearing successful over being successful or feeling right over being right. And it's funny because part of me wanted to argue that. And then I just thought about almost <laughs> every situation where like different times when I would just feel right. I'm like, I don't even know that that's true. 
<laughs> something I've been working on the last few years, especially having a public platform. I need to, I feel I have a greater responsibility to research things and watch what I say and whatever. But, and so there's been a lot of comparison to when I was just having conversations with somebody who I knew might not look it up. <laughs> it's like, that is so true. Why does that happen? Yeah. I mean, we just, we're, we're prone to protect ourselves, right? And when we think of what it means to be territorial, well, when we think of an animal and they're sort of walking around and they're, they're peeing and they're marking their territory. And you know, as an animal, if you come in that territory that you might encounter trouble. But when it comes to us, we're territorial about how we see ourselves and how we want other people to see ourselves. And we want to believe that we have the best ideas and we want to believe those ideas are right. And the minute that something challenges those ideas, our default response is just to protect ourselves. And protecting ourselves in that moment means we want to feel good about our choices. We want to feel good about the situation, feel good about the things that we're doing. And so what do we do? We stop listening. We discount. And that's what it means to feel right over be right. And so we want to feel good about ourselves. We want to feel good about our choices. But that's not rational when you think about it. Right. If you're thinking outcome over ego, you want to get the best outcome. So maybe our choices aren't the best choices. Maybe they're not the most rational choices. And the whole point is these are just situations that tend to get us thinking less. There's situations where circumstances or the situation tends to think for you and we just instinctively respond like the animals that we are. So you talk about how we can't eliminate these default patterns, but we can reprogram them. Where do we start? Yeah, so so many people just think that if we're aware of them, we can just get rid of them. And that's not how it works. These are ingrained by thousands of years into our genes. And the way to get rid of them is impossible. I mean, we can search for that our entire lives. But what we can do is we can manage them. And we manage them through safeguards. We manage them through process. We manage them through what we've already talked about, automatic rules for success. And we use these to sort of avoid the situation entirely, think for us in the situation so we don't have to um, think in the moment to add friction to the situation. So if we're in the situation, it actually, the path of least resistance becomes the path we want. So we, we basically change our default behavior to be our desired behavior. And I think that those are just the ways that we can do it. And I talk about a lot of ways to use it at the office, a lot of ways to use it at life great way at the office is sort of how what happens in meetings, right? Typically we get together for a meeting, we're solving a problem, somebody comes in, they throw a problem on the table. If you work with a whole bunch of smart type A people, then everybody starts solving the problem, but nobody pauses and is like, are we really solving the right problem? And so you can create safeguards around that. And a safeguard is like, hey, we're going to break this meeting into two. Instead of one hour long meeting, we're going to have two 30 minute meetings. And those 30 minute meetings are going to be, we're going to define the problem in the first one. And then the second one, we're going to solve the problem. And that creates this pause. So you're using structure, you're using an artificial environment to create the behaviors that you want to create. And that turns your default behavior or your desired behavior into your default behavior. And I think that there's all these little things that we can do to just make things easy. So again, at first you want to play on easy mode, but if you can't play on easy mode, you want your environment to take over. That sounds like a genius strategy to use in like relationship conversations. My husband and I are really good at communicating and we're still human 
and we still have those moments where we kind of both are able to recognize it now, but like we might say something out of emotion or or come down to talk about what we need to talk about and how to fix it. And so there's still like a little emotion behind it. And then the other person gets a little bit defensive. And then a lot of times we have a sort of productive conversation and then we step away and we come back and then have a more productive conversation. But I can see the value in almost building that into our communication structure where where it's like, you know, if there's something wrong, maybe we come and we uh, address it. And then we like step away for 30 minutes and come back. And then, because then we each have time to simmer, put down our defenses, really think about it and come back in a different state of mind. So two things in that. So one, how do we handle the situation better? That is entirely correct, right? So again, you're looking at a moment that's already happened. What can we do in that moment to be uh, more productive and loving towards each other? But the other thing that you can think about is like, wait, how do we prevent this moment from happening? Or if it does happen, it just takes on this reduced sort of capacity. And often what's underlying a lot of these feelings and defensiveness in the moment is that we're worried our spouse doesn't love us. We're worried that we're not okay. We're not enough. We have all these little fears going on inside of us that are unconscious and they come into this conversation and they're not intentional. And we don't talk about them because we don't really know what's happening. We just feel this, right? I'm defensive because I feel like I'm being judged. I'm defensive because I feel like I'm not enough. I'm defensive because... And so how do we avoid these situations in the first place? Well, let's go to an automatic rule. What's a great automatic rule for couples to have? And it sounds so silly and so cliche. And I guarantee you it works, which is why don't we have a weekly date night with just us? And we get together and we talk about our lives and we talk about what's going on in our lives. We talk about our wins. We talk about what we're struggling with. And if we make time to connect every you know, I know a lot of couples that do this every night when the kids go to bed, they just have this sort of time, 30 minutes of cuddles and connection. They talk about their day. They don't necessarily talk about transactional things. They're not cleaning the kitchen. They're not doing anything. They're just sitting on the couch, connecting with each other. And what happens in that moment is that some of these fears dissipate, right? All of a sudden you feel more secure in your relationship. All of a sudden you feel more confident in who you are. And then when these moments arise that you're talking about, they just don't carry the same gravitas they used to. And so, yes, we might still fight. Yes, we still might get emotional. But again, on a scale of one to 100, we're not 90 anymore. We're 70. And there's a big difference between those two. And now it's a lot easier to navigate those conversations than it was before. Again, it comes back to it's actually those little decisions that set you up to handle the bigger ones better. Exactly. And, and, you know, here's it's a funny story. I mean, one of my friends was arguing with his partner over, um, what was it, cleaning service, right? And it was just so weird that they get into, we get it, we all get into these little tiffs where we're arguing about something that, you know, if, if I tap you on the shoulder and I say, hey, you're about to put gas or water onto this situation, what do you want to do? You know, you're going to be like water. I don't want to like, what, why are we arguing about this? This doesn't make sense. But these things can go on for months and they can go on for a long time because there's really something more under the scenes. We're not really arguing about that. We're arguing about feelings. We're arguing about safety. We're arguing about attachment. And I'm not feeling safe and secure in this situation. And so what are the things that we can do to build our relationship? And that looks different for everybody. I said a weekly date night. But you have to figure out what you and your partner need to feel safe and secure with each other and 
hopefully it looks the same way. And if it doesn't, you have to accommodate each other. You also share four strengths that help us counteract the enemies of clear thinking. What are those strengths that we should be working on? Yeah, so I talk about self-accountability, self-knowledge, self-control, and self-confidence. And these are all things within our control, right? We have to recognize that we have agency, that we have control. We have to learn about ourself and our strengths and our weaknesses. We have to exercise control in situations, whether we're putting in safeguards or we're just taking a breath, as you talked about, before you respond. And then we have to have self-confidence to sort of take action. And the self-confidence taking action is probably the one that people struggle with the most, ironically, because fear, again, is an emotion and an emotion that becomes an anchor if we let it. And so where does confidence come from? And I think this this is an interesting conversation a lot of people don't talk about, but it comes from all the hard things that you've done before. And it also comes from just a recognition that you know, I don't have to have the confidence to get to the outcome. I just really have to have the confidence to take the next step. And so instead of ultimate confidence, you can just think of it as next step confidence. And then it becomes a lot more manageable. And I sort of thought of this, I came up with this idea when I was with my son and we we had climbed up this cliff and we were jumping off. And I think he was about 10 at the time. And I was like, do you really want to do this? Because like, if we climb up, we can't come down. Like, it's too dangerous to climb down. I, I, like, you you have to jump or I have to throw you in. Like one of those, that was the only two passed down. And he's like, yeah. And so we get up there and then all of a sudden he starts looking down and, you know, panic strikes. It's like 20, 25 feet. It's a pretty big jump. And his breathing changes and all these negative thoughts go in his head. And, you know, it was like, how do I work through this? I've never really had to work through confidence with anybody but myself before. And I was like, okay, well, first thing we're going to do is we're going to step back. We're going to take control of our breathing. Second thing we're going to do is just remember all the hard things that we've done before. All the first time you went snowboarding, right? Living through a pandemic. You've done all these hard things. You've uh, you know, you've gone through a divorce, your parents got divorced, you've done these things you weren't prepared for that you didn't have any um, skills that you could reasonably handle them and you came out okay, right? And so, oh, it's okay, I've done these things, yeah. And then we're going to change your perspective and the perspective is we're not going to look at the bottom because that means I'm thinking about the confidence all the way to the bottom. We're just going to look out over the horizon, and I don't want you to have the confidence to take, get all the way to the bottom. I just want you to have the confidence to step off the edge. So don't look down and just walk out and over. And that's what he did. And it ended up working well. And, and you know, for anybody who's a parent, he was back up there within like 20 seconds going again without any pep talk whatsoever. And so it's sort of, we do the same thing with ourselves, right? Where does we often become our own worst enemy in self-sabotage. Uh, especially when it comes to taking action and what happens in those moments. And one way to recognize that is that we're, we're always searching out new information. We've confused talking about something with doing something and we're getting the same sort of rewards from talking about it that we do from doing it. And I think that those are sort of warning signs that maybe we need to check our confidence and take action. Confidence is one of those things that I, that is like this underlying factor. I I just recently polled my whole audience and and so many of them were saying they were struggling with confidence. And my first thought was actually that I wanted to commend each person individually for even having that awareness because I always sort of thought of myself as a confident person. 
But then looking back, once I finally made life moves, I started was a I was able to look at the previous 10 years and realize that I had been talking myself out of every big move. And it came down to things like self-confidence, worthiness. I didn't even realize that I was struggling with those things. And so anyways, for any listeners out there who realizes that they are struggling with confidence, you're one step ahead of where I was because that awareness is the first step. And then you're more easily able to make the changes. One of the things- Here's the strange thing though, right? Like action creates confidence. Inaction creates a lack of confidence. And so the longer you remain inactive, the longer you put off that hard thing, the harder it becomes to do. And the quicker you take the first step, you don't have to have the ultimate confidence, right? Confidence to get to the end goal. You just have to have the confidence to take the next step. And that next step creates the confidence to take the next step. And it becomes this powerful momentum. Yes, because you're building the belief that you're the type of person that doesn't take action, that talks yourself out of things. That's one of the things I've been working on just being a parent with willpower. I I am blown away that there are so many people who have gone through parenting. (laughs) Like every day, it's the end of the day. And I'm like, I can't believe I accomplished all of that. I can't believe that like half the population is accomplishing all of that all the time. My respect level for every parent went up. But it's just having to get up and do things that I would have normally been like, no, I'm too tired to do this. And now I just have to. So I'm kind of seeing that reflect in other areas of my life. (laughs) There's some days where I'm like, I deserve a gold medal. And I, you know, the only thing I accomplished was giving the kids dinner, right? Like, (laughs) it's like, you know, this was a Herculean effort today and that's okay. Some days are like that. Well, one of the things that you teach is that that the first step to building any of these strengths is raising the standards that you hold yourself to. And I'm wondering, is that one of those things that is easier said than done? (laughs) And why do we have such low standards in the first place? Well, sort of. Not all of us have low standards, but if you've ever worked with somebody exceptional or you've ever had a friend who's exceptional at life and you would consider them exceptional at life, one thing you'll notice is that they have elevated standards. You work with somebody who's amazing, they have better standards than everybody else. They hold themselves to higher standards and they hold everybody else to higher standards. That's what makes the team better. That's what makes them better. That's one thing that really impacts them. Same at life. If you have a person who you're like, oh, they're really good at life. I'm sort of envious or a little bit jealous. you'll notice that they're more probably more choosy about who they spend their time with. They're more choosy about maybe what they put in their body. They're more choosy about these different things. And those standards become something you can adopt. And so let's rewind a little. Where do we get standards from? Well, we're born into a household. And the standards of the household that we're born into are pretty much luck. And we adopt those standards because those standards become our norm. And if I am fortunate enough that I have a friend who's got really high standards or I have a colleague at work who has really high standards, at first that contrast is going to be jolting, but I'm really going to start elevating myself. And I know this because I ended up working with one of the best people in the world at what I did in the intelligence agency. And this person was like, I don't know, pick whatever athlete that you want to that's at the top of their game. They were that person. And I would go to work with them every day and they were exacting. 
and they were relentless and they would not let me get away with anything. They had standards that were so far from what I had for myself that I couldn't believe it. And most people just avoided this person. And I thought that that was really weird because I was like, oh, I'm like actually learning a lot. Like, this is great. And the more I hung out with them, the more I noticed that my standards started to increase. Well, maybe I should. And, you know, I probably uh, went from at best uh, below average to at best, you know, above average in part because of just how much they changed me and how the standards that I held myself to were so much better. And we can do that in life too. And we we don't have to have models. We can adopt the best models that exist. We don't have to know what to do, you know, in terms of what does it mean to hold a higher standard? We can just start looking at ourselves. How do I spend my time? Am I spending time on things that are moving me forward and towards the goals that I have for myself and my family? Or am I spending my time on something that's not doing that? And if I'm not, how do I create an automatic rule? How do I create a situation where I'm not relying on willpower? You know, you sort of use the example of Instagram and a lot of us get caught up in Instagram. Well, you can set a little thing. If you have an iPhone, you can set a little timer on it. You get 20 minutes a day. Uh, so now you've created a forcing function. You've created an automatic rule that'll get you out of doing that. And I think that we can just use these things to set our own standards. And once you start set, setting your standard a little bit higher, uh, you'll notice that it has these compounding benefits and then you'll you'll want to do it in all other areas. I mean, we all have that sort of one person in our life that pulls us down, that's like an anchor, that's sort of still in our friend group that we want to get rid of, but we don't quite get rid of. We, you know, they're just not serving us anymore. And, you know, the standard can just be higher, which is like, I'm not going to hang out with this person anymore. I'm not going to think about this person anymore. And that doesn't mean that they're a bad person. And it doesn't mean they did anything wrong. And it doesn't mean that you need to spend your time with them just because you have, again, that's inertia at work. You're not thinking. And if you think about it, you can be like, no, I want to spend my time doing something else. I want to join a running club. I want to join, I want to work out more. I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to see this person anymore. And that's okay. And I think that, you know, we need to grow up and we need to think about what we want as adults and go after it. I think that who you surround yourself with is one of the biggest, the most important things you can do when you're making big life changes. When I'm coaching people, I teach them to create their circle of influence. And it's what I did when I started a business. I literally went and followed people from all the stages from like just ahead of me doing something like putting themselves out there to cricket still to people that looked like they might be making a little bit of money to like millionaires doing the same thing. I started joining entrepreneurial groups. I joined a WeWork so that I was constantly surrounded by people that were showing me that this is possible. And it reminds me of my friend, Sarah Wells. She uh, is a Canadian Olympic hurdler. And I met her at this public speaking program that I did. And we were talking. And one of the things that she ended up sharing with me was that she was just an average runner at one time. And then she ended up having the uh, the option or the opportunity to train with somebody who was in the Olympics. And it was just supposed to be like this temporary thing. I think they were using the same track and she was talking to him and Long story short, her big takeaway was from him, she learned that he didn't have like this 
crazy ability that he was born with. He just realized he's going to train harder than everybody else. And so she started watching that and started using that mindset. Like, it doesn't matter where I'm starting from. I don't need to be like running out of the womb. (laughs) I just need to know what to do. And, And she started training harder. And when we were at this public speaking program, she was getting up every morning at six, going running, running afterwards, like doing the things that other people aren't willing to do. And so often we're just think like, oh, well, I'm not cut out for that. It's like, yeah, with that mindset, <laughs> just do all yeah, the things. You, your mindset determines a lot, right? And you, environment determines behavior. So if you want to change your behavior, start hanging out with people whose default behavior is your desired behavior. And that will change everything. And as you just talked about, that's a perfect example of that. Join groups where the default behavior is the behavior you're trying to adopt. Well, I love leaving listeners with an action item or something specific to think about during this week to sort of set the ball rolling of of a new way of being, uh, thinking clearly. If you were to give them one piece of homework, whether it's something to do or something to think about, what would that be? I would ask myself, what is one thing I can do today to position myself for tomorrow? Mm, I love that. One of the things that my husband and I are always reminding each other is in our 20s, we lived basically screwing over our future selves, <laughs> like whether it was loans or drinking or whatever. It's like, oh, I'll do this later. And now I'm like, I don't want to do this at all, but future Melissa doesn't deserve this either. <laughs> so I'm going to do it now. And the benefits of that have been not just the fact that I make it easier on myself later, but like we talked about in the beginning, I've created space to make a a different decision, a decision that actually move like rather than having to wake up and clean the kitchen because I didn't do it the night before, I get to wake up and actually do something that moves me forward in life. So I love that action item. And for listeners that are loving this conversation and want to learn more about you and your book, where's the best place for them to connect? I mean, you can find the book anywhere. It's called Clear Thinking, Turning Ordinary Moments into Extraordinary Results. If you want to follow our weekly newsletter, which goes out to 600,000 people on Sundays, you can subscribe at fs.blog. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or anywhere else, just Google Shane Parrish. We also have a podcast called The Knowledge Project. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 324. Your challenge for this week is short and sweet. It's just to ponder on the question, what is one thing I can do today to position myself for tomorrow? I think for me, the clearest thing that I can do to answer this question is actually to just write out my task list for the next day. When I lay out my day the night before, Suddenly, I can immediately get into action when I go back to my computer or I'm ready to start work. I don't have to sit there and think about things, to dive back in. There's no friction between now and my next task. So for me, I go back and forth between the best self journal, which is still my favorite paper journal. But right now, I'm kind of on a a digital kick. (laughs) So I've been writing all my tasks out using the Things app. Moving on from Todoist, my ADD brain has to switch tools frequently to mix things up. So currently I'm 
scooting all of my to-dos from my task list into the today list so that I can just get started right away. The other habit I'm in is meditating a lot. Actually, currently I'm meditating like at least twice a day, but sometimes up to five. And it has been a game changer. It's really difficult to ignore actual data and having my aura ring and my stress levels and sleep levels and all that and seeing how much they are clearly affected when I am meditating regularly in a positive way. It's just hard to ignore, so it's motivating me like crazy. But I've noticed that when I do not meditate as often or at all, my stress levels are seriously exponentially more. Meditating once a day even decreased my stress levels by 80%. Mind-blowing. So those are my two tips. Planning your day the night before and meditation. But this is all about self-discovery. What works for you? What is your intuition and higher self telling you, nudging you to do to make your life better just by planning something a little bit in advance? I'd like to know what you come up with. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. If you love this episode, consider sharing it. Take a screenshot, tag me at mindlovemelissa or mindlovepodcast or both. You can also check out the membership at mindlove.com slash membership. There's all sorts of masterclasses to help you bring more intention to your life, including one on meditation. You will learn the power of a lasting meditation habit through meditation. So it'll actually be really fun to dive into. There's also courses on goal setting, priming your mind for lasting change. We've even got some intentional sexuality things in there by a guest host. So check it out at mindlove.com slash membership. All of my amazing sponsors with all of their excellent discount codes is at mindlove.com slash sponsors. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.